A timely reminder, God rules in the kingdom of men. Why is this a timely reminder? In case you haven't noticed, we are in the midst of a political season right now that's uh, taking place. And on November 8th, just a few weeks from now, we will cast our votes. We will appoint our rulers. And uh, this is the third presidential election I've been able to participate in. I haven't had many. I barely missed the 2004 election. I wasn't old enough. So this is only my third in my short voting career. And probably even for many of you in the room that have voted time after time after time again, this is probably undoubtedly the most tumultuous election season that we have had to date. And many in the room would feel the angst that is, that is just kind of in the air right now around our, our country. And to make matters worse, we live in a swing state. So we live in a state where everyone wants to pour their advertising dollars and they want to put uh, all of the ads and all of the campaign slogans. And it's so big in Pennsylvania. I've never lived in a swing state up until now. I lived in Kentucky, which Kentucky is just Kentucky. I lived in Arkansas. They're going to do their thing. Then I lived in in California, which is a very obviously blue state where you're going to elect Democratic uh, governors and uh, Senate and, and all the rest of it. I did actually live in a segment of California that my district and our congressmen, we were really red, actually. We always had Republican congressmen. And most people think of California in one big, broad, you know, fail swoop. But uh, we were about an hour and a half north of Sacramento, very inland, and a lot of just blue-collar working people, lots of almond orchards and olive orchards. And it was really hot during the summertime. We're in a valley, and it was oftentimes 110, 112, 114. But my state, there was, there was never, there were no ads. There was no reason to put an ad up. You had a Republican congressman, you had a Democratic Senate, and you had a, a Democratic governor. That's just the way it was. But now I live in Pennsylvania, and so do you, and we live in a swing state where we are, I've just been amazed at how bombarded we are with ads everywhere. And of course, most all of them are negative, but we are just constantly, it doesn't matter if you're on social media or if you're on the internet or the radio or just driving down the road in the signs or your TV, it's just everywhere. You have Trump and you have Clinton and you have Toomey and you have McGinty that are these ghosts of Christmas past that just haunt you everywhere you go. You can't shake them. It's just, it's pervasive. It's in the air because we live in Pennsylvania. And I'm weirdly enjoying it, but there are many times where I just think, I could use a break from all this. This is, this is just getting to be bananas. It's, it's so prevalent everywhere you go. And we watch the debates. How many, raise of hands, we've had, uh, we've had three debates now, two presidential, one vice presidential. How many have watched at least two out of the three? Okay, so the majority of the room, we've watched some of the debates here, and uh, some of you maybe even got your pizza and wings, and you, you know, made a party out of it and had the neighbors over. I don't know. I didn't get pizza and wings. I got, like, some antidepressants and some anxiety medication. I just sat there. All, but I'm just kidding. I didn't really do that. I'm being facetious. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy season, honestly. And this reminder from Daniel chapter 4 is a timely reminder for us. If there's ever a point or a a section of a few weeks where we probably just need a good dose of God's in control and he's ruling in the kingdom of men, it's probably right now. So I don't do this because it's political season. I give this sermon because 
It's the sermon of Daniel chapter 4. It's just where we happen to be. And this is the primary theme of the book, God's sovereign through chaos. And it's the primary theme of this chapter that that God is ruling. And we have kind of, there's been this drumbeat kind of in the background of every sermon where you see God's ruling, God's ruling, God's ruling. But in Daniel 4, it's, it's a drum roll. I mean, it's just, it's so prevalent that God is in control of what's happening, even in the kingdom with King Nebuchadnezzar. So, I think that we can break down verse 17 and this thought of God ruling in the kingdom of men into four factors. So I want to give those four factors to you today as we unpack verse 17. So factor number one is this, the involvement uh, factor. God is powerfully involved in our world. Look at Daniel 4 verse 17. And we're going to pick up kind of midway through this verse where Daniel says, this is the point of all of this. Nebuchadnezzar, what's happening, the dream, the interpretation, the judgment, the point of all of this is so that the living may know. What does God want the living to know? He wants them to know this, that the Most High ruleth, so that God, Jehovah God specifically, ruleth. That word ruleth there has this uh, implication that God is the premier. He is the sovereign. He is in control. And that's not a newsflash. That's, that's nothing new for us as Christians, or I even think for Daniel and his companions, that God is ruling. That was a, a prevalent thought. But the next phrase is what sets this thought apart and makes it so profound. He says that God, or the Most High, ruleth in the kingdom of men. That God is not just sitting on his throne, ruling heaven in control of angels and in control of the cosmos, but that God is powerfully involved in our world, in our day-to-day, in our political systems. We would say it like this, God's not a deist. Deism is the thought that God created the world and he stepped back and now he's, he's pretty indifferent to the world now. That God has set the wheels in motion, and now he's up in heaven just watching a giant cosmic show, and he's just enjoying what's happening down here, and he's not involved in our world. And we know that that's an absurdity, number one, because the Bible tells us that's an absurdity, and it lets us know time and time again that God is powerfully and intricately involved in our lives, in our day-to-day, in our political systems, and we'll see that here in just a few moments. But we also know it's an absurdity just from practical experience. Our prayers tell us that God rules in the kingdom of men. When we pray, what do we do? We, we praise and we worship and we confess sometimes, but oftentimes the bulk of our prayers, it's intercession. It's, it's asking God for something. It's prayers like, Lord, help this family going through a trying time. Father, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, would you would you help my aunt? She is physically going through this battle. Would you be strong for her? What are we doing in those prayers? We're asking God to powerfully involve himself in our world. We're asking God to involve himself in our lives. And, and if we couldn't pray those prayers, how depressing would it be to be a deist and, and not be able to ask God to involve himself in your life. And we understand that on a personal level, God wants to be there for us. And on a cosmic level, God is in control of everything and he created it. But even somewhere in the middle, 
Somewhere in the in-between with our political systems and our governments and things that are over us, that it's a power, but it's not the, the Almighty. It's not God the power, and it's not us. It's somewhere in the middle, that, that murky gray area, that even there, God is involved, and He is powerfully involved, and He is ruling, and He is in control of the kingdom of men. I want us to survey this. I could go through 12 chapters and we could do this, but thus far we've covered four chapters of Daniel. And I want us to see little portions of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, where, and we just did that in chapter 4, where God shows that he is so powerfully involved in the kingdom of men. So flip back to Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to take a very brief survey of the first four chapters and just see how, how pervasive this is in Daniel. It's, it's constant throughout the book. Look in verse number 2 of Daniel chapter 1. The Bible says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is the leader of Judah. He's leading God's people. That the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Bible says of Jehoiakim and Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar being able to conquer Jerusalem, that God did this. That God gave Jehoiakim over and that he was in control of that. Look in verse number 9 of chapter 1. This is the king's meat where Daniel says, I refuse to eat the king's meat. And he has to petition Ashpenaz, who is the prince of the eunuchs. Verse number 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. That somehow on an emotional level, God had knit Daniel to Ashpenaz and God was intricately involved even in that relationship with Daniel and Ashpenaz. Look at verse number 17. As for these four children, speaking of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That the, the dreams and the interpretations that we see all through Daniel, that God did that. He gave that to them. That was not their own power. That was not their own intellect. That was not their own ability. That was God ruling and God doing it. Look at chapter 2, verse number 20. Daniel gets the vision of the of the statue where there's the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver. And if you were here a month or a month and a half ago, whatever it was, we we're in Daniel chapter 2, then you remember those, those several sermons that dealt with this. And the statue represents, the Bible says, kingdoms. That word kingdom is the same word used in Daniel 4 verse 17, where God rules in the kingdom of men. That he said the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of the Medes and Persians and the kingdom of Greece and the kingdom of the Romans. That God is involved in those. But Daniel gets this vision. Daniel gets this interpretation. And this is what Daniel says after he sees the image, the kingdoms, and that God is in control of it. He says in verse number 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And don't miss verse 21. He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. The Daniel says God does this. God is in control of these kingdoms. God's in control of who's ruling and who's not ruling. That he is ultimately controlling all of that. Look at chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse number 29. This is after the fiery furnace where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faith is rewarded, and they, they come forth and they're not burnt. Verse number 29, Nebuchadnezzar says, Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their house shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. 
Nebuchadnezzar sees what happens. He sees the miracle, and he sees it as an indication that God did this, that God was in control of this, that God superintended this, that the Lord Jehovah was was superseding all of the flames and all of the trial and all of that, that God was in control of that. And then we looked at several in chapter 4, verse 3 and 17 and 25 and 26 and on through chapter 4, and we could just keep on marching all the way through the book of Daniel, that we find this involvement factor. God is involved in our day-to-day. God is involved in our kingdoms. God is ruling that. He's in control of that, and he's sovereign over that. Factor number two. The installment factor, and this gets progressively tougher. The installment factor, God installs sub-rulers. Go to verse 17, where we're launching from. We find that the Most High, chapter 4, verse 17, the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. You say, how, how is God ruling? Is he, I don't see him on the throne of England I don't see him in the Oval Office. I don't see him giving the State of the Union. I don't see him making laws. How is God ruling? How is he giving this? The, the Bible says that word giveth there is Nathan. It's an Aramaic word, which literally means to bestow or to pay out, that God is divvying out. And it says to whomsoever he will, literally whoever he pleases. That the Bible is saying this. The Bible is saying that God has all the kingdoms of the world in his hand, similar to my $1 bills. I would love to have 20s, but I have ones right now. I have, I don't know what this is, 17, 18. I gave a couple out in the, in the early service. So there are 18-ish $1 bills here. These are mine. They're not yours. They're mine. Now, God gave them to me, and I'm a steward of them, but these are my $1 bills. And I can give them to whomsoever I will. Now, the, the team boys in the front row, their eyes are lighting up, and they're, they're wanting me to give them to whomsoever. So I can, if I want to, I can go to Noah, and I can give him a dollar. I can give Noah two dollars if I want, because it's mine. I can do what I want to with it. I can give Connor a dollar. I can give you two dollars. I can choose to skip Colin. I don't have to. Oh, we feel bad for Colin. I wouldn't do that. You get one. Okay, you get a dollar. I can pay out my money however I want. I can bestow it. I can give it to whomsoever I please. And the Bible says, well, you keep that, man. That's all yours. Well, thank you, Noah. How kind. More money for lunch today. (laughs) The Bible says that God rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomsoever he will. That God can take uh, Israel and say, Bibi Netanyahu, I want you to be the prime minister. God can take Uh, England and say, Queen Elizabeth, I want you to be the queen. God can take uh, America and say, I want you to be the president. And I don't know who the president's going to be on on November 8th, but God's in control of that. The Senate, the Congress, the whatever it may be, that God can appoint those sub-rulers. God can install whoever he wants. Now, in case you think that I'm going too far, and in case you think that, that, oh, that's just, that's one verse, that's two verses inside of Daniel, I've gone too far. I want you to see that the Bible is replete, and I, I could, we could go all day long on this. We're going to do maybe six or seven. The Bible is replete with scriptures that indicate just this, that God is not just ruling, but when it comes to our kingdoms, our governmental systems, our political systems, that God is even in control of that and superintends all of that. So if you keep your finger in Daniel 4, I want you to go to Isaiah, because Isaiah has several. I'll read a couple to you, and we'll look at a couple in Isaiah as well. Isaiah's back towards the middle of your Bible there. Isaiah 14 is the chapter that we're going to be in. 
Of course, Daniel, we just saw in in chapter 2, verse 21, that he removeth kings and he setteth up kings, that God does that. We see in in, uh, Daniel 4, uh, verse 31, that Nebuchadnezzar lifts up his heart in pride. And Nebuchadnezzar says, is this not the kingdom that I have built by the might of my own power? In verse 31, Daniel tells us that to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, that God not only sets up kingdoms, but that he can take them away, that God repossesses the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Look at Isaiah in chapter 14. I need to get there with you. Chapter 14. The, The Bible says, and God says, speaking of destroying the Assyrians, here's what he says in verse number 26. Speaking of destroying the Assyrians, God says, this, this is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? God says, this is what I'm doing. Try to stop me. Try to push my hand away. Try to stop what I'm doing here. You can't. This is what I'm going to do. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. So flip a few chapters over, Isaiah chapter 40. And look in verse 15, a profound passage. And we love the end of this passage, that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. We love that verse. But Isaiah 40 is a tipping point in the, in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 39, 1 through 39 are all judgment and gloom and doom. And 40 is this, okay, let me give you some hope, Israel. And here's what God says as he starts his, let me give you some hope here. Verse number 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. Go over a couple chapters to Isaiah 44. This is one of the most profound prophecies in all the Bible where God gives a prophecy of Cyrus, the Persian ruler, who will rule and what Cyrus will do. Now understand when this prophecy is given in Isaiah that the Medes and Persians are in existence, but they are not a world ruler at all. Babylon's not even a world ruler at this time. This is 175 years before a man named Cyrus will do what the verse says he's going to do. This is before Jerusalem is conquered. This is before the walls are torn down. This is before the temple is demolished. Before all of that, here's what God says in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. So God says, this guy named Cyrus, he's going to do what I want him to do. Even saying unto Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. God says, here's a man named Cyrus who's going to, once the temple is destroyed and once the foundations are destroyed, he's going to tell you to go back and rebuild it. And we find that 175 years later, true to the prophecy, a Persian king named Cyrus arises and tells the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. That's where we have Ezra, Nehemiah, and those portions of the Bible. That, That that comes true, and God is in control of that. God is superintending that. The Bible says in Jeremiah, Jeremiah about Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar is my servant, and I'm using Nebuchadnezzar how I want. The Bible says in the New Testament, Romans 13, verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, speaking about the governmental systems, those that rule over us, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. 
That's what Romans 13 says. That these powers, these leaders, these in the, in the first century, these Caesars, this Herod, these people, they are ordained of God, that's of God, and he is appointing his sub-rulers. If you remember in John 19, Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate tells him, basically he's, he's angry with him. He's asking him questions, and he's doing this inquisition of sorts, and Jesus won't answer. And Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to kill you? Why won't you answer me? And Jesus replies to him. And Jesus says in John 19, there is no power but from above, and your power came from above. That's what he tells Pilate. He says, Pilate, you're wrong. You don't have the power to kill me. You, you have power only because God gave that to you, only because he has appointed you a sub-ruler. And time and time and time again in the Bible, we see even in the political systems, even in the kingdoms, that God is in control of that. That's the entire, the back half of Daniel 6 through 12 or 7 through 12 is all prophecies that indicate God's in control of this. He's ruling this. He is appointing his sub-rulers and that he is not caught off guard by anything. And more than just appointing the sub-rulers, God can take those back. That all the kingdoms are on loan. And, and Nebuchadnezzar found that out. That God gave him a kingdom and to, to teach him that he was in control, God said, I'm repossessing the kingdom. I'm taking it back. And God has the power to do that. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that there is coming a future day where the kingdoms of the earth are going to be judged. And, and the Bible says that that judgment is going to come upon them as a woman that is in travail with child. I used to, to see that verse or read it and think, that's strange to me. It, it's, the indication is that it comes suddenly. But we, Maggie and I, had, had one son. Brennan is two and a half now. So I'd read that verse and think, we went through labor. I know what that was like. I mean, you, you know you're pregnant. That's, well, I don't know what it's like. Excuse me. All the ladies are like, no, you don't. So I don't know what it's like, uh, but Maggie does. And I was there. I, okay, I observed some of it. So some of it. Uh, we went through labor. We were a team, okay? We went through labor. We were a team. I'm not backing down from that. So we... <laughs> We, we went through labor, but you know that you're pregnant for nine months, and then, and then you have Braxton Hicks for several months. Ladies, you know this, and all the warning signs that this is coming, and then labor comes, and, and labor did happen for us, and it was just progressive, just kind of gradually grew, and we went through the day, and it was getting stronger, and then you enter into active labor, and then you go to the hospital, and this progression but that verse began to make more sense, that God's going to judge the kingdoms as a woman in travail with our second child, who was just born two and a half uh, months ago, Willow. And Willow, she's just, God bless her, she's just, uh, I guess she just wanted to be different. She was late. Our first son was early, five days. Willow was late. How late was Willow? Four days, five days, six days, something like that? It's been so long. It's been two and a half months. I can't even remember. Uh, two and a half months with a newborn is actually a long time. You know that. But she was late, and it was 3.30 Thursday morning, and there were no signs of labor that day or the day before or the day before that or the day before that. And we're frustrated, and we're trying all the tricks, and all of you all are telling us all the tricks. You know, eat spicy food and eat pineapple and hold your finger on your nose and hold your breath for 20 seconds and all the little tricks that supposedly bring about labor. And they don't work, okay? Can we just make that clear? They don't work. If you do enough of them, eventually one will coincide with having a baby, but it doesn't, it doesn't work. So anyway, it's 3.30 in the morning, and I, I'm asleep, and apparently Maggie had got up, and I hear my name, Mark, get the car. 
There was, there was no warning sign. There was no, this is getting bigger. Let's time the contractions. It was just, this is happening right this second. So sure enough, I hopped out of bed and we got the car and we went as fast as we could and we called the Waddells to come over. We actually left our house. It was so intense. We left our house before our babysitters had even arrived and our son is just sleeping in his crib. I know we're bad parents, right? He, he was without someone for like 15 minutes, but we knew, like this is, she knew, this is it. Like it's happening right now. We went to the hospital and they confirmed like this is, you know, game over. This is, this is happening right now. And that was, that was a different birthing experience for us where travail came suddenly and came quickly and came, I mean, almost without warning. Now, obviously, we knew we were pregnant, but it just happened in the middle of the night. And, and the Bible says that even with the kingdoms, that God appoints sub-rulers, but he can also take those back, that they're still his, that he's still in control of that. And he does that in Daniel 4. And God is not surprised by any of the world rulers. He's not surprised when Putin does this or when Netanyahu does this. He's not surprised of our political system and black swan candidates and God doesn't need a campaign manager to run his affairs in heaven. He's in control of it. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going on and he is, he's superintending it. He gives the kingdom of men. He rules in it and he gives to whomsoever he will. Whoever he wants, God installs the leaders that, that he sees fit. Factor number three. It gets progressively depressing, I'm warning you. The improvement factor. God often installs sub-rulers who are far from perfect. Look at the end of Daniel 4, verse 17. So here's the reason this came. To the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men, the involvement factor, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, the installment factor, and setteth up over it the basis of men. Literally, that, that word means lowliest. We would say it this way. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel. That's how we'd say it. That oftentimes, God appoints or God gives to whomsoever he will, and that whomsoever he will is the basis of men. We oftentimes feel like we can improve our leaders, our candidates, and frankly, that's never going to change. Even if we get on a national level that we are happy with everyone. We're happy with the city council. We're happy with the township. We're happy with the Congress and the Senate. And the, then we'd look on an international scale. We'd still be discouraged. We, we're always going to feel some of this, that we feel like we could improve on, on who we have. And that, that is the, the basis of men. This is probably most pronounced in this election season. And to be clear, you may have a candidate that you love. You may love uh, Hillary, you may love Donald, you may love Gary Johnson, you may love somebody. If you do, great, two thumbs up, that's, that's fine. I'm not here to tell you to love someone or not, or to dislike someone or to not. But it is statistically proven that right now in our country, we have more disapproval and more uh, angst than ever before. There's a poll that's done every election season, and they call it the favorable or unfavorable rating. And what it, what it is, is they ask people, would you tell us, we give you this candidate, tell us how you feel about them. Do you feel strongly favorable? Do you feel mildly favorable? Do you feel neutral? Do you feel mildly unfavorable? Or that's, that's, I don't know why they picked that word. They should just pick like love, hate. But, or are you strongly uh, unfavorable? And in our 50 or 60 years of testing this and polling this, the highest a candidate ever got was 32%. 32% of people said strongly unfavorable. 
We've broken the system this year, folks. There is, I will, well, I won't name names. You can find out. There's one candidate who polls at 37%, strongly unfavorable, and another candidate who polls at 52%, strongly unfavorable. Say, what's that mean? It means that we're dissatisfied. It means that we feel like Daniel 4, like we have the basis of men or women or the basis of human beings that are, that are trying to lead us, that we don't like, we're, we, we have disdain even sometimes for the leaders that are elected to, to guide us, and that is what Daniel 4 is saying, that sometimes God will install a sub-ruler who we just don't care for. And obviously your neighbor may care for them or someone else may, but oftentimes there are people that we feel like we can improve. We feel like we can do better. A commentator named Montgomery said, this statement that he set up over it, the basis of men, is a truism in the facts of history. Montgomery says, if you look through history and you look at the world rulers, you'll find this true. And he is right. You can go look at Pharaoh's, you can go look at Caesars, you can look at presidents, you can, you can call them whatever you want to, potentates, kings, czars, I don't care what you label them. Look at the rulers and oftentimes you'll find that they're just not great people. I read about a year ago, it was an audio book that I listened to by Bill O'Reilly called Killing Jesus. And it was not a theological book, it was meant to just give some history and some background to the first century and where Jesus walked and what he was involved in. And a lot of it focused on the rulers of the regions, of Galilee or, or the Caesars or those sorts of people that were in Jesus' age. And he talked a lot about the Herods. The Bible's it's a little confusing on this because there's a lot of Herods in the first century. There's Herod the Great, then there's Herod Agrippa and Herod Antipas, and one married uh, lady named uh, Herodias, which makes it all the more confusing. But he talked about the Herods. Herod was one of them was the uh, one who said, let's murder all the, all the newborns, those that are newborn to two years old, in Bethlehem to make sure that we get the Messiah and we kill him. So that's one of the Herods. One of the Herods uh, killed John the Baptist because his, his wife, uh, Herodias, wanted to kill John the Baptist. So these are the people that we're talking about that, that will kill on a whim, that will do whatever they see fit. It was said of Herod the Great, who killed the, the Jewish babies in Bethlehem, that it'd be better to be his pig than to be his son or daughter because all of his children, he'd feel threatened by them and he'd just kill them. Several of his wives, he'd, just, he'd kill them because he didn't like them. And they said, you'd be better off, you'd have a better chance of survival if you were his pig than if you were his blood relative. But that's not, that's not an anomaly is what I'm saying. That that's a truism for history. That you look all through the Bible, other history books, that oftentimes the leaders are really depraved people. Oftentimes the leaders are, we, we saw Nebuchadnezzar already in, in this book. The Nebuchadnezzar is a psycho sometimes. He really is. He's, he's wanting to cut people in pieces and make their house a dunghill all the time. And God says, look, understand there's an improvement factor that I'm going to appoint people sometimes who you feel like you can improve upon, who's the basis of men that you feel maybe that in your heart that you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. I will say this. You say, well, does God just pick people at random? Is God purposefully trying to make us mad? Is he, is he just giving us uh, this leader or that leader? He's giving the world this leader on this international stage just for the fun of it and he's playing games? No, not at all. I think the primary condition for who we have as our candidates or who uh, is ruling internationally, the primary condition is this, the moral condition of the people to be ruled over. You find that all through the Bible, that those that are leading them are indicative 
of the moral condition of the people that they're leading. And I don't know if that's shame to us or not right now, but oftentimes there's an improvement factor where we feel like we can do better. And Daniel 4 says that. Lastly, the inducement factor. A proper view of this, and a proper view of Daniel 4 verse 17, induces praise. I want you to look at the very end of Daniel 4 verse 37. Daniel 4 verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar comes to grips with this, that God is ruling, and I am not in control. I'm not the final authority. I, I don't have all the power. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes to grips with that, verse 37 is what happens. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Nebuchadnezzar says, I praise, literally, I adore, I extol, I lift up, I honor, I magnify. That Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I hold God now dear to me. I'm lifting him up. I'm pointing other people to him. I'm doing all this because I understand that God is in control that I'm no longer in control, that it's not me, it's not about me, it's not, I don't have to put my hope in myself or my hope in other leaders. I now have my hope anchored to God and that induces a praise inside of Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, look, all of God's works are truth and his ways are judgment. That what he does, his actions, and the path he, he chooses to arrive at those actions, what he does and how he does it, it's just, it's right, it's true. That when God is ruling or God's setting up kingdoms or he's putting his sub-rulers, that God is in control of that. And it's just, it's right, it's true when he does it. This is exactly what Daniel 2 verses 20 through 22 uh, say when Daniel understands that God is controlling the kingdoms of men. Daniel has a similar praise. He has this prayer where he just praises and magnifies and honors and glorifies God because he understands God's in control. God is superintending this, that nothing has caught him by surprise. And when we have a proper view of that, it's a timely reminder for us. When we feel, when we feel unrest, when we feel uncertain, when we feel tumultuous because of what's happening or what could be or the future and our hope is in the political system or our hope is in our township or our hope is in our party or whatever it may be then that is a sad place to be our hope should be anchored to God Almighty we should understand that he rules he is in control and that should induce praise in us it should not induce fear it should not induce anxiety it should not induce uh, de depression and I joked about anxiety meds and antidepressants we, none of that. It should allow us to praise and understand that God is in control. This teaching and this understanding that, that God rules in the kingdom of men and he sets over it who, whomsoever he will, and oftentimes it's the basis of men, that understanding actually is not depressing. It's exciting because you understand God is in control. So what, what should our response be? Are, are, am I saying we should not be involved? We shouldn't vote? We shouldn't care? We shouldn't check out our political candidates? Not at all. Here is, in a matter of two minutes, and I'll literally do it in two minutes or less, here is a brief survey of the Bible of what our response should be to this. So, number one, and this is from Romans 13, where God says that he ordains the powers that be. Romans 13 clearly tells us that we should submit and pay our taxes. Says so this is what the leaders want. They want your submission and they want your taxes. So give it to them. 
Now, obviously there's a caveat there. If we're told to do something that's clearly contrary to Scripture, then we shouldn't do that, and the Bible is clear on that. Daniel 1 with the king's meat, uh, Acts, which is better to serve God than man, we understand that. But we should submit and pay our taxes. We should esteem those that are in authority and understand that God put them there. Anything that I've said today about our angst or, or looking is all future of, of our potential candidates, those that are in authority right now. I'm, I personally, I get really bothered when people say uh, about President Obama, well, that's, that's your president, he's not my president. No, he is our president. When we have an understanding of this, I don't care if, if you voted for him or not, and, and maybe this half of the room did and this half of the room didn't. I don't care. The, the point is that God put him there, and, and we are to give submission and authority and reverence. The Bible's really clear on that, that the, the powers that be that God appoints, we don't have to agree with everyone and everything, but there should be submission and respect there. The Bible's very clear on that. So we should submit and pay our taxes. Number two, we should pray for our leaders. First Timothy 2 tells us very clearly, pray for your leaders, especially if they need the prayer. Not just the Christian ones, but the, the ones that are non-believers. Pray for them. Number three, we should trust God. We should trust in God. Our hope should be in him. Our trust should be in him. Proverbs 3, that we should trust in him with all our heart. Not, not in election season for change, but in God for change. Number four, we should evangelize. Be involved. Vote. Go to a meeting. Go to a town hall. Do whatever you want to do. I'm great with that. But if that trumps, and that's, that's not meant to be uh, a reference to Trump, but if that supersedes, if that goes over and above your evangelization, then that's a problem. When we, when we put our hope and we anchor ourselves to change in our, in our current political system, local, national, whatever you want to choose, when we, when we get so enamored and involved in that that we forget to evangelize, we're lopsided. We, we are, we are we're disjointed when, when we miss the point that our hope for change is in the gospel. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in evangelizing the nations. It's in sharing our faith with people. That, that is what really is the change. And I could go so long on that, but I won't. I'll cut it there. Five and lastly, what should we do? We should look for the coming kingdom ruled by King Jesus himself. Daniel 2 is all about that. Uh, the end of Daniel is all about that. Many passages of the New Testament are about that. That we understand there is a coming kingdom where Jesus will rule and reign, where justice will be precise, where everything will be exactly as it should be under his heavenly government, his heavenly rule. And we look forward to that. We long for that. We don't long for November 8th. We don't long for November of 2020. That's not what we long for. We long for the kingdom that is coming, that Jesus Christ himself will rule and reign. The point of Daniel 4 is this. It's a timely reminder. God rules in the kingdom of men. He knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. And this applies to our lives and what's happening individually for us, but this also applies on a local and national level, even inside of our politics, that God is in control of that. The involvement factor, God's powerfully involved <clears throat> in our world. The installment factor, God installs sub-rulers. The improvement factor, God often installs sub-rulers who are far from perfect. And the inducement factor, a proper view of this and God's sovereignty should induce a heart of praise.